1 Samuel 20, verse 5. Here, David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go that I might hide myself in a field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to to Bethlehem, his city, for there's a yearly sacrifice for all the clan. I'll give you a moment to find 2 Samuel. I'll give you a hint. It's right after 1 Samuel. Just start at the beginning and work your way back. You'll find it. There's no 3 Samuel. I entitled this, The Kindness of Our Heavenly King. I'm just going to read for us verse 3 to introduce us to the text, and we'll pray. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 3. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of God to him? Let's pray. Well, Father, as we look in our Bibles today and we see kindness from a king, as we see mercy and grace from a king, an earthly king, Lord, I pray that we would be reminded of how much greater, just as we just sang, how much greater the mercy, the kindness from the heavenly king. Father, we pray that this text would do that work for us, that we would ultimately see King Jesus today, that we would be reminded of just how much kindness we have been shown. Lord, we pray that you would use your word to this end today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm taking us to 2 Samuel 9 today because I believe that this text is to me an obvious, one of those obvious places that you can go to to see, some, uh, to see typology. I know I've used that word many times in going through the book of Acts with you guys. Um, typology, in short, is when you go to the Old Testament and you find passages where God is painting a picture of a, of a reality that's going to be fulfilled later on in time most particularly in the New Testament. Um, But God has done this. And if you remember from the book of Acts, we were looking at all the ways that the Apostle Paul argued for the suffering of Jesus, for the resurrection of Jesus. And mostly he's not going to explicit uh, what we would call messianic passages in the Old Testament. He's going to, uh, to types and figures from the Old Testament to show these pictures of what the, the coming king, the, the coming Messiah, would do, how he would suffer, how he would resurrect. And here, I think we have a very clear picture given for us by God in 2 Samuel 9, painting a picture for us of a king, the king in Zion, showing kindness to a very helpless individual, not only a helpless individual, but an enemy of the king, And this paints a picture for us of how the king and and our heavenly king shows mercy to us who are helpless and who are 
in fact, the king's enemies. So the historical setting, if you don't already know, of 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 1 begins with King Saul, his sons, including Jonathan. They die in battle at the hands of the Philistines. And with King Saul dying, this is what leads to King David becoming the king. First in chapter 2 of 2 Samuel, he becomes the king of Judah. Chapter 5, he's going to ultimately become the king of Israel as well. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where God gives that prophetic, prophetic utterance to King David that we, that we call the Davidic covenant. And I wrote it down here. I'll just read it to you. Well, you know what? Turn there to 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's probably just going to be one page over. This is important to see for, for our text today. If you remember, Paul referenced this prophecy in Acts chapter 13. We looked at it last week. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12 says, When your days are fulfilled, this is God speaking to King David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So what we see right off the bat here is as King David is established king over Israel, we see that there's a promise of a greater king to come, a king that will be established forever, a king that will come from David, that will be established forever. And that's the king to come. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, we have King David. He's just ascended to the throne. With his ascension comes an unexpected, I would say, an amazing extension of kindness to some of his enemies. And so we're going to look at the kindness that comes from King David, and we're going to see that the king's kindness is three things. Number one, this kindness is a very natural outflow of his very nature. His nature is to be kind. Second, this kindness comes from a covenantal mercy, a covenantal commitment. Third, This kindness is unconditional, meaning the one who receives this kindness receives it wholly on base, uh, on grace, undeserved, undeserved mercy. So let's look at the first one. The king of Israel's extension of kindness is just a natural outflow from his nature. And where do I get this idea from that that grace, kindness, mercy are just innate characteristics of the king's nature. We'll think again about the timing here, the timing of this gracious act of King David that we're going to see. He's just ascended the throne. Chapter 8, David has finally established his kingdom. He's finally brought peace. He's defeated. He suppressed all the surrounding enemies. He he suppressed and, and ended the Philistines. He's really put them down. 
And this extension of kindness is right on the heels of King David really establishing himself as the the rightful and powerful ruler of God's people. And one might be inclined at that point, you, you might be inclined to be bloodthirsty, to be vengeful, to not be merciful. But look what we find. Let's start in the text. 2 Samuel chapter 9, 1. This is how we find David, who's been slaughtering, who's been putting down his enemies. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I might wipe them out as well? No, that's not what he says. He says that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of God to him? As I said, there's several interesting things here about King David at this point deciding to show the kindness of God to the house of Saul. Because we all know Saul, we all know his relationship with David, how Saul didn't just attempt to ruin David's life, he actually tried to end it. And so the first thing to think about the king at this point deciding to show kindness is how in the world is this even in David's mind at this point to show kindness or or mercy to the house of Saul? Try to put yourself for one moment in King David's shoes. King Saul has been persecuting David since 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 8. That's where all this began. I'll read that verse to you. It says, And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have, dis- uh, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David with suspicion from that day on. That's just where it began. You know how in a few verses later, uh, Saul's going to attempt to pin David to the wall with that spear Saul sends David out to fight against the Philistines, hoping he's going to be killed. Uh, It seems that Saul gave uh, David his daughter, Michael, with the hopes that she would stumble him by her worship of idols. Saul's going to send assassins to David's house to kill him. David has to flee, he has to escape. He ends up living amongst the surviving Philistines somehow. And so if you're David, can you imagine the hatred, the bitterness that would have developed over all of this time for anybody who shared even the name or the family of King Saul? And so this kindness that King David has is a very rare grace. It's a very rare mercy for this king of Israel to even have in his mind. I have a note here about 
how uncommon this kind of kindness or this kind of grace would be uh, even historically. David just attained the kingdom from King Saul, and it was far from customary to even leave a remnant of the prior dynasty alive. This was, this was a, a strange thing, let alone show them the kindness of God. Let me read an interesting statement from one of these commentators I read. His name's Dale Ralph Davis. He has a commentary on First and Second Samuel. Listen to how rare this grace seems historically for a king who just took a throne. Davis says, When a new regime or a dynasty comes to power, the name of the game was Purge. You needn't go wandering into ancient Near East to confirm this. You can stay within the pages of biblical history. You can watch Basha or Zimri or Jehu, all in the kings. You can there find what happens to the remnants of a previous regime. The new king always needed to solidify his position. It was conventional political policy, solidification by liquidation. Everybody knew it. Everybody believed it. Everybody practiced it. Wow. Seems to be a pretty blanket statement that this kindness that King David is deciding to show is a rare, a rare mercy. The safest thing King David could have done was to, to, to wipe out every trace of King Saul's lineage to prevent any of his descendants from trying to regain the throne. But that's not what we find King David doing. Instead, King David has a heart of mercy, of kindness. And we know that God says of David that David is a man after his own heart. Like God, David just doesn't have a nature of, of wrath he does have that, but he also has a heart to extend grace and mercy. And this is an attribute of God, this attribute of kindness and grace and mercy that we are to be very thankful for. This is the nature of the King of Israel and the nature of the King of Heaven. What about the second point, the covenantal nature of this king's kindness? There's another reason that the king of Zion has chosen to show mercy. The second reason is that he's entered willfully into a covenant. King David had entered into a covenant. What's a covenant? It's a, it's a sacred bond. It's a sacred commitment. Now, as you look at 2 Samuel 9 here, there's a couple indications in our text that this mercy, this kindness from David is in fact a covenantal mercy. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 9 does not actually include the word berit. The word berit, the Hebrew word berit, is the word that we translate covenant. That's where we get that word covenant. But if you look at verses 1, verses 3, even verses 7, there's another word translated kindness, that this is the first clue that the king's grace is 
covenantal. You see that word, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And then verse 3. Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? That word for kindness is hesed, the Hebrew word hesed, and here it's translated kindness in the NASB. A lot of times NASB, God's loving kindness. If y'all remember, uh, Brother Randy Johnson did a, I think it was a Sunday school or a sermon back at the hotel on this word, on hesed, on the loving kindness of God. I don't remember if he covered every single, um, it probably wasn't because it's a very common word, but he did a, a, an amazing overview of how that word is used in the Bible, the loving kindness of God. But here, not only does the prophet Samuel merely hint at the notion of covenant by, by using the word said, he's actually explicitly recorded for us David having entered into a covenant with the house of Saul. Uh, flip back to 1 Samuel chapter 18 real quick. Put your eyes on this. 1 Samuel 18 verse 1. This is a very early commitment in the life of David. It follows right on the heels of him destroying Goliath. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow on his belt. Now flip a couple pages over to 1 Samuel 20. 1 Samuel 20 verses 5 through 8. Let's see how this covenantal relationship develops between Jonathan and David. Remember, Jonathan is King Saul's son. 1 Samuel 20, verse 5. Here, David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go that I might hide myself in a field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to to Bethlehem, his city, For there's a yearly sacrifice for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly. That's the the verbal form of said. That's our word there. Deal kindly with your servant. Why? For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? So I just take us here to see this connection in this, between this language of, of berit, of covenant, and said, God's loving kindness, God's kindness 
is a result, flows out of this covenant commitment that he's, that he's made. And that's my original point back here in 2 Samuel chapter 9, is where here it describes David showing kindness to the house of Saul. Well, this kindness is coming from a covenant, a covenant that he's made with the household of Saul. A kindness that in verse 3 is called the kindness of God. It's not simply the kindness of David. David wants to show the kindness of God. And so as King David, just as with King Jesus, extends mercy and grace that's based on a previous covenantal bond. King David's covenant was made with the house of Saul. Jesus' covenant is made amongst himself with the other two persons of the Trinity, a covenant that was made before time began. You can see this spoken of, Ephesians 1.3, John 17.2, Ephesians 3.11, these verses that mention this, this commitment of the persons of the Godhead to save a people. This is where the Son of God agreed to show kindness to some of the household of Adam, to show kindness to those who are his very enemies. Christ Jesus, based on his sacred bond with the Father and the Spirit, was willing to extend grace and mercy and kindness and not his judgment. Now, we're going to spend most of our time on this third point. Let's look at the last aspect here of the king's kindness. And this is the unconditional nature of his mercy. The unconditional nature. So pick back up with me in the narrative, verse 3. Because what we're considering now is the condition of the one who's going to receive the king's mercy. Who receives the king's mercy in our text? And we're going to see how this mercy is unconditional. Verse 3 again, And the king said, Is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Mocker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mocker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Now, this is a significant fact to Samuel, who's writing this passage, That if you look down at the end of our passage, this section here, he repeats it. The fact that this man who receives this kindness from the king is crippled. He's crippled. And this is significant due to the fact that this grace he receives from the king is just that. It's grace. This man is a cripple. This man has nothing to offer the king, King David, this man can't offer labor, he can't work, this man can't even take care of himself, this man can't fight for the king, 
This man has nothing to offer in and of himself to the king, and yet the king shows this man mercy. At this point, a lot of the the more liberal scholars, they like to postulate that David was kind of bringing this man close so that he could keep an eye on him, you know, keep your enemies close kind of idea. Um, So we can make sure that this man didn't try to make a run for the throne. But this man is a cripple. And in this day and age, it would be out of the rule of, the realm of possibility for a cripple to ascend to the the kingdom. He he would not be considered to be the king. And so what we see here, the, the king of Israel is in fact showing an unconditional mercy to this man. This man is a descendant of the king's enemy and is naturally therefore an enemy of the king himself. But despite all of this, the king... The king of Israel unconditionally shows kindness. And it's here that you can't help but make the connection with the similarity that we share with this crippled man and the fact that we have nothing in and of ourselves to bring to the king. We are by nature enemies of the king. Because of our relationship with our father, Adam, we are his rightful enemies. But what has the king, the sovereign king of the world, decided to do? He has unconditionally showed grace. A grace rooted and bound in a covenant. Our king willfully took our sins upon himself, took our problem upon himself, that we would have new life. And now somehow, although crippled, we're able to serve this gracious king. The antitype is Jesus' kindness. The antitype being far greater than the type. The type is king is King David's kindness. So we're only up to verse five. Let's move quickly through the rest of the narrative here. Let's look at the response of this enemy of the king who's called into the king's presence. Verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant? that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Mephibosheth comes before the king. He's called in before the king. He comes before the king. He's probably, remember, he's crippled. He's brought in before the king. He doesn't know, most likely, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. He doesn't know if he's there for blessing 
or for curse. But either way, his response is fitting. He's brought before the king and he's he's face first prostrate. Although being a crippled, he, he rightfully prostrates himself, probably awkwardly bows before the king. And I just thought, thinking, thinking of the typology, how, what, a, what, a, what a fitting picture that is of, of our feeble repentance before God is like a crippled trying to rightfully bow before the king. But this turns out for this man to be a blessed day. This crippled, this helpless man, when he hears this this phrase from King David in verse 7 there, when King David says to him, do not fear. Do not fear. These are blessed words to the grandson of Saul, this, this man who had most likely probably been hiding out in fear. Since the death of his grandfather, he's been in this, this nowhere town far off Lodabar, seemingly out of sight, out of mind, out of notice of the new king of Israel. But amazingly, he's, he's brought before the king. And what does he hear? Do not fear. Do not fear. And then in verse 7, the king goes on to give him a land promise. David said, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Wow. Certainly Saul had the choicest of lands, the most land probably. Can you imagine all of the land, the beautiful land that King Saul had? And he, King David has a mind to give this to Mephibosheth, his enemy, this crippled man. He gives him all of King Saul's land. And then as if grace upon grace, what does he go on to say? And you shall eat at my table always. Now you have to grasp the significance of this blessing because who's called, who gets to sit at the king's table? Only the most highly esteemed by the king. His family, maybe, certainly his family, his closest and most trusted friends, his, his most trusted advisors. But here at King David's table is this helpless man, this descendant of the king's enemy, one who certainly has been clothed in the finest of clothes to attend this feast And this feast that he gets to enjoy is not just on occasion, but David said, always at my table. And then go on in verse 11, he says, not as my enemy, but like one of the king's sons. What an amazing day for this man, a day when literally The old things have passed away. All these things are becoming new for him. And the response is fitting. The response this man gives is fitting for this grace. This grace, this kindness that the king shows to this man does not puff him up. 
It doesn't cause him to think unreasonably about himself. But what we see in verse 8, he rightfully responds. It said he paid homage. His response is, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth understands unconditional, unmerited grace. I just think you, this is what I appreciate. This is what the doctrines of grace should produce in us. Is that kind of response, that kind of thankfulness, that kind of appreciation. Because I don't think you've understood unconditional election unless you've come to the point where you cry out to the Lord, why me? Why, why me? I'm a dead dog amongst a bunch of other dead dogs. Why, why have you called me in to sit at your table always? Why are you going to consider me like a son? The text goes on here to show that this extension of kindness is not just an empty promise, but the king delivers on his word. Verse 9 Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is certainly a picture of the king's grace to undeserving sinners. It's, sinners. it's a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ that all of us need to partake of. Again, the typology is King David is a type of King Jesus. And who's Mephibosheth? Well, that's who we are. We're the Mephibosheths. All of us who have shown, been shown kindness by the king, we've all in our sin and our shame, we've fled the king of Zion, we've all fled to Lodabar to hide, yet the king sought us out, the king came and found us, his enemies, and he decided to show us kindness. Now, interesting how this text ends because just like for Mephibosheth, 
he received this grace to live in the presence of the king. And this grace that he received, it says there in verse 12, is also a benefit to his son. Verse 12 said, And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. His name was Micah. And from this text, I've known this text, it's from this text that I set a reminder for myself. Hence, Canon's name, Canon Micah Matthews. And so when I hear Micah, it's to be a reminder for me that I should have been wiped off the face of this earth for being an enemy of the king. And the king showed mercy to me, and I pray by the grace of God that when Canon hears his name, I pray that he would appreciate, that he'd be thankful for the grace of being in a family where the king showed him kindness, that he would desire to serve the king. Let's pray. Father, our desires for all of our children to realize the grace that is theirs, that their parents have been shown great mercy by the King, that they should, as with most, be hiding out somewhere from the king, living their lives in fear of the king, fighting against the king. But our children, just as many of, many of us have been shown grace and kindness by even being allowed to live in Jerusalem, to live near the king. Father, we pray that that this would be true for all of our children, Lord. We, um, we don't often respond as rightly as Mephibosheth did to the grace we've received, and we pray you'd forgive us for this, Lord, but we pray that, that our children would see more than how we respond to the king, but that they would see how the king responded to us, that they would say, wow, what kind of king is this that would show mercy to people like my parents. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these pictures that you put in your Bible for us. Lord, we, um, we pray you would be honored by our worship today. We pray you'd bless the taking of the supper now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.